an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari. This episode is entitled, Dragon Stomper. Into the Vertical Blank. Hey Steve, how's it going? It's going okay. It's been a long summer, we haven't been able to do an episode of Into the Vertical Blank. How's your summer going, Jeff? It's okay, we had a, a pretty decent trip to Seattle where I looked around video game stores and I went to a couple of a couple of really cool stores around the Seattle area. I got some cartridges while I was there. That's cool. Yeah. And then I was swimming in a lake and broke my back and now I'm sitting in yes, here. Yes. Well before you went swimming in the lake and broke your back, which is awful. We took a trip to Portland and Eugene and I found a copy of Disney's Coaster, which of course is not an Atari thing, but it sort of lives in the vertical blank. It's from 1993. It's a game where you would design roller coasters and people would judge them. It's actually really cool. Oh. Anyway, I found it. That that was a full unopened copy, like a new old stock copy of that one. I was really excited about it. I don't know why. Let me tell you a kind of a funny story about Coaster. I guess there weren't that many computer game magazines. I guess it were because computer games weren't covered that well. Even Computer Gaming World only covered like role playing games in, in the early 2000s, early 90s. Yeah, early 90s. So like, it wasn't even an action section in the PC. This is still in the vertical blank, by the way. Oh yeah, an action section in Computer Gaming World, which is a magazine all about computer games. So I think anything pre Windows 95 is in the vertical blank. I'm just I'm just going out on a limb and saying that. 
maybe even some win because d- even during Windows ninety five, there were games that mostly most games played in Win thirty two. It's really Windows ninety eight. Really, when you get to two thousand, yeah. when like games are gone. But anyway, we can always discuss that later. Because we'll, yeah, we can debate. We're not like we'll shift. But um, we so we got coaster. Blank actually goes. Sorry. So we got coaster, and we actually both loved coaster, making coasters and and riding them in three D. It was really cool. And then there was a new magazine that popped up. It was like I think it was probably, probably PC gaming, the one that's out there now or whatever. Then they started using the hundred percent scale sort of like one of the first magazines to use that scale that you see we always saw in the European magazines for the SC and things like that. And they started calling games that were really bad coasters. Now, because they kind of started coming on CDs. Because the CD, yeah, they started coming on It's not a coaster. Now, I didn't, I thought they were calling them like coaster. And so I was all, what are they talking about? That's a great game. <laughs> and I didn't realize they made, they use it as a coaster. That's really funny, actually. Anyway. It's very Jeff, by the way. It is very Jeff. Let me tell you the games that I got while I was up there. Um, I got Bionic Commando for the NES. And I got uh, Pinball for the NES. I got 10 Yard Fight for the NES. These are all games I remember playing at Wesley's house. Oh, yeah. Wesley Cruz. I got Rydar for the NES. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then this summer's other purchases included a, a couple Super Nintendo, um, like one, uh, ga- one 101 yeah. and 168 and one Super Nintendo cartridge. And I oh, also cool. got uh, a Mega Drive SD card cartridge that has all of the Mega Drive games and all of the Genesis games and all of the uh, Sega Master System games on one SD card that could play in my Mega Retro. That's a lot of gaming goodness you got going on it there. did. Guys. I also got a 218-in-1 cartridge for the Genesis. So for some reason, I kept on buying a bunch of them. So let's when you mentioned the NES, and I never really played NES games except for the few we played at our friend's house in the in the 80s. The first time I really started playing NES games was the Game Boy SP, the Game Boy Advance SP which is that little flip-up one that had a backlit screen. The clamshell one. That was cool. Yeah, the clamshell one. And one of the games I got was Final Fantasy 1 and 2 on a cartridge. And it kind of blew me away because I'd never played a Final Fantasy game before. I never played a Final Fantasy game. But what it reminded me of is like what people think that role-playing games started with Final Fantasy or actually Dragon Warrior on the NES. And I really enjoyed Final Fantasy 1. It's really good. It's a little bit like, like an SSI fantasy game, a little bit like Ultima. We know that it was somewhat programmed by the guy from Sirius Software, who was the guy. Um, Niger Ge- was somewhat... Oh, Niger Gabelli. Gabelli. Sirius and from Gabelli Software. Yeah. Before so it doesn't live in the vertical blank, obviously, because we never really enjoyed it at the time. But what does live in the vertical blank is the first console RPG that we played which was not Atari's adventure, which I don't really consider an RPG. It's not really considered an RPG, really. No, it's an action-adventure game. It's fun. I have a weird relationship with it because the most important thing to me about that game is finding the secret message. Other than that, I was somewhat embarrassed by it as a kid because of the dragon ducks and everything. I didn't want my friends to see it. Yeah, even then we were embarrassed by it. Yeah, but the game that came after that that we played on the Supercharger 
An Arcadia Supercharger was a device that plugged into the Atari VCS that you could load games from cassette if you plugged into a cassette recorder. And we happened to have a cassette recorder. And we bought one of the first games we bought because we salivated over the this box art was Dragon Stomper, which I still believe has some of the best box art of any game ever. It's totally amazing. And Dragon Stomper is, to me, the first console RPG game. What do you think, Jeff? It is, and it was Starpath because Arcadia, they had to change the name. That's just one thing. Um, so it was Arcadia first. They, so the Arcadia Corporation was making joysticks and stuff like that. I remember the joysticks. They sort of had this round dome on top, and um, they were selling them. So Starpath had to change their name. So, I mean, Arcadia oh. became Starpath. So that's not the same company. But we were, I just think that we, when we were looking through electronic, because everything, our entire world was electronic games. That was our entire fandom where we got all of our information from. And now we've had a couple episodes this season of Battle Electronic Games Magazine. And I have another one coming up too that I'm editing. But in EG, we were always looking for ways to upgrade our VCS because we were sort of disappointed by it. Right. You know, we waited so long to get one that by the time we got it, which is about five years after we wanted it, it was sort of outdated, way outdated. I remember that we didn't even have too many of the original games until way later because we only wanted the new advanced games from Activision and Magic and others. Oh, we picked up most of the older games at Target for like two, a dollar a piece. Yeah. Or, yeah, or even Kmart. I remember us getting like Space War you know, at, yeah, for a dollar or something at Kmart because we just wanted something to play. We wanted the newest. We basically, I think we bought, we got our Atari We wanted mostly Activision games. We did. When you saw the box art and the uh, screenshots or screen art in Electronic Games Magazine, you're like, oh my God, like that's amazing. That makes Atari's games kind of look crappy. We actually went out of our way Whenever we'd avoid the ugly ones and went for ones we knew were on the computer, hoping they would be as good, like Marauder. And I think we're kind of disappointed by Marauder, but I go back and play it now, and it was a pretty good game. Like, it was terrible. Well, Threshold. No, I mean, the game, the actual, the game did not hold a lot of value play-wise, but when you look at how it was coded, the way the guys chased Oh, I'm sure they coded amazingly. Yeah. It just, nothing had any depth, and I think we were looking for depth, and so... Just the box art. I mean, the most depth we could even imagine was looking at the box art on a for a game and wondering what it could be. And anything that looked like it was a fantasy adventure game, we're like, oh my god, maybe that's like Dungeons and Dragons, which we had right. started playing at school with our friends. I remember in like '82 or early '83 seeing the box for Ultima Two for the Atari 800 at the warehouse. And I think Ultima 2 was the one that came up from Sierra. I think Sierra released that one. It was one of the only Ultimas that Sierra made. In the back of the box, the description was like, sounded like the most amazing in-depth like game you could ever play. And I was just salivating. And that compared with playing like, I don't know, basketball in the 2600 just depressed me to no end. Like, I felt like we were never going to get to the point where we could play real games. I don't know what I was so so important to me. It just was really important that I be able to play games that were in-depth. I just knew something about in-depth games. Ultima 2, the original release was 1982 by Sierra Online. It was later re-released by Origin. And Ultima 2 came out on a lot of systems. Okay, but Apple II, Atari 800, Atari ST, Commodore 64, DOS, FM Towns, Macintosh, MSX2, NEC PC 9801, and the FM-7. 
So it Ultham was amazing. And I think we started looking through Electronic Games Magazine wanting to find something in depth. And when we saw the StarPath Supercharger, which is supposed to like basically turn, when you looked at the graphics, it looked like it was going to turn the Atari VCS into a computer or make it play games like a computer. We couldn't wait for it. Its real advance was that it could load multi-stage games from a cassette into its 6K of memory. It could load in a multi-stage game like Dragon Stomper, which was amazing for us. Did, did we, we, we saved up our money and got a Star Pass Supercharger sometime in mid-1983. See, it was mid-1983. And, and we got an Atari 800, but we got an Atari 800 Christmas 1983. Yeah. So, so we only had, and at some point we sold a bunch of Atari stuff to get a Vetrex, and I think that was after we had the Atari 800. No, 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 Jeff. Jeff, 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 Jeff. Oh, go to, oh, it's 82. Summer of 83, we sold our, our Atari to get a Vectrex. And so what happened, I believe, and we can go back. Okay. We got the, we, we, our, with birthday money at some point, we got a supercharger in 1983. It was really cool. And we played Dragon Stomper Escape for the Mind Master. Then we sold most of our old VCS stuff. Right. Cartridges and stuff. We kept supercharger. And then we got a Vectrex. We kind of had the VCS and the Vectrex at the same time, but we sold off like tons of our VCS games. We had Phaser Patrol, Communist, Communist Mutants from Space, and Frogger uh, eventually. And so I think at that point, we had what we thought were the absolute best Atari 2600 games. We got the Supercharger and we played Dragon Stomper. And Dragon Stomper was one of those seminal gaming moments where nothing would be the same after playing. No, you were correct about that. I thirsted for more and more in-depth games. Nothing was going to satisfy me on a console computer was the next biggest thing. But I think you have a really in-depth story that you've written about this already. I do. We're going to queue up next. So why don't we do that? Let's get into that. Then we can talk about a little bit more of the details. Is a dragon stomper? Why, it's one who stomps dragons, of course. It's also one of the best games ever made for the Atari 2600 VCS, and it didn't come on a hardware cartridge. It came on a $15.99 cassette tape. There's an article in Forbes magazine by Ed Lynn from November of 2005 called Xbox 360 Has Nothing on the 2600. In this article, Ed calls the 2600 the greatest game system of all time. He calls Dragon Stomper the best title ever made. That's high praise. This is what he had to say. The best title ever made in the history of US video gaming was Dragon Stomper. It will never be surpassed because games are no longer comprised of the labor and love of a single person. Games no longer have the consistent vision of a single artist or programmer, nor the dignity to end with a finality to close off all sequels. Hats off to Dragon Stomper creator Steven Landrum. In this episode, I go way back to the early days of the vertical blank in Atari lore. 
we delve into one of the all-time best games for any console of the early 80s. A game that relatively few people have heard of, let alone played, from the original cassette release. By cassette, I don't mean the bastardization of the word cartridge that many parents and even some kids incorrectly called games that could be played on consoles, starting with the Fairchild Channel F in the mid-70s all the way through the Nintendo 64 in the late 90s. Like the C60s you'd buy at Thrifties to record that mixtape that you wanted to give to the red-haired cheerleader in front of you in class, but you never did? Yeah, those. Those very same cassette tapes that were used to store and play sophisticated computer games on all early 80s computers, such as the Atari and the Commodore 64, were also available, albeit in limited supply, and from only a single but masterful company for the Atari 2600 TV game console. In 1981, a small company named Arcadia was formed with the purpose of cashing in on the craze that was home video games. The company was quickly renamed Starpath when it was learned that at least one copyright was already registered with an association to video games. The company was Emerson Arcadia. They were in use and they were creating controllers for the Atari 2600. The small group of bright individuals at Starpath set out, not like so many others, to just slap retread game carts on the video game world, but to create something new and maybe something brilliant. This team of industry veterans and young hotshots spent most of a year fueled by caffeine and junk food reverse engineering the Atari 2600. The result was a keen knowledge of the inner workings of the hardware and an invention that would result in some of the finest 8-bit video games ever made. The Star Pass Supercharger allowed the Atari 2600 to access 6K of RAM as opposed to the 128 bytes that others had to work with. Also, it made use of those same, that I described before, cheap cassette tapes to store and load game ROM and data as necessary. The use of these standard cassette tapes allowed Starpath Supercharger games to be much larger than the standard 2, 4, and 8K Atari cartridges. Unfortunately, the game industry died well before the Supercharger could completely revolutionize the industry. In its wake, the Code Warriors, who crafted this device and its fine software library, would go on to make a huge impact on the 80s video game industry. The Starpath Supercharger is an item that is sought after and coveted by collectors today. The games remain some of the very few Atari 2600 games to have never been given a public free release. They were released as a licensed CD-ROM called Stella Gets a New Brain in 1999. Steve, Fultonbot, and I, 8-Bit Jeff, grabbed a supercharger in one of the second installments sold to stores in our area in the spring of 1983. It was already becoming difficult to find in some areas, and most games were going for less than the 1999 original price tags. We had the games Phaser Patrol and Communist Mutants from Space originally, and also purchased Escape from the Mindmaster, Dragon Stomper, and Frogger not long after. 
Phaser Patrol was a Star Raiders style game. Communist Mutants from Space was a very decent Galaxian style game. Escape from the Mind Master was a 3D puzzle adventure game with more depth than any game we had ever played before. Dragon Stomper, the game we're gonna talk about, was an actual computer role-playing game, one of the first CRPGs available, and one of the first, if not the only, for the Atari 2600 console. These games were as good as any computer games we had played, and some, like Escape from the Mindmaster and Dragon Stomper, had a level of depth we had yet to experience even on a computer. Also, they were inexpensive. A quality Star Path game could be found for under 20 bucks at the time. Other, inferior games were selling for almost twice that price. Steven Landrum was the designer and programmer for Dragon Stump. He also created Communist Mutants from Space and Frogger, an official licensed Frogger, an incredible version for the Atari 2600 for the Star Path Supercharger and Suicide Mission, which is an Asteroids-like game. He would go on to survive the video game crash as Epix purchased Starpath in the wake of so many companies closing. There, he would be the principal designer and game programmer on the Handy Portable, later bought or stolen by Atari, renamed The Lynx. Stories abound on that subject, though, elsewhere on the internet. Steven's Blue Lightning for the Lynx is still considered one of the great games for the system. He is also credited with programming or creating such classics as Summer Games, Pit Stop 2, and Temple of Apside Trilogy for the 8-bit computers. Mr. Landrum was also instrumental in creating the 3DO console. Dragon Stomper, originally titled Excalibur, was in the first wave of games released by Starpath. Other notable first wave titles were Phaser Patrol, Fireball, an interesting take on Breakout, Communist Mutants from Space, and Suicide Mission. Dragon Stomper was one of the first true role-playing games modeled on Dungeons & Dragons released for the Atari 2600, or pretty much any console of the time, to any depth more than just an action game. I remember Steve and I spending hours in front of the TV in the living room, patiently collecting enough gold and magic items and getting our dexterity and strength up high enough to get to the second load of the tape and go to town. We persevered and eventually beat the game in what turned out to be one of our very first video game triumphs. Dragon Stomper is probably best appreciated for its innovative music, easy to learn interface, and multiple solutions to problems. For example, you can win the game in more than one way. You can kill the dragon, or you can just steal the amulet that powers the dragon back from him by being sneaky. You can also traverse the cave to the dragon with rope, or by jumping down and then healing yourself if you forgot to buy rope. The simple menu interface, using just a four-way joystick and a single button, was as elegant as anything today. While the hilarious music tracks such as, I'm in the money, that trigger during gameplay create a perfect atmosphere. It was also the first taste of role-playing on a home console and an amazing achievement for the Atari 2600. Dragon Stomper takes place in three different locations, each needing a separate load from cassette media. You begin the game by traveling the enchanted countryside in an attempt to obtain magic items and gold necessary to make it across the bridge into the oppressed village. 
Once in the oppressed village, your task is to buy enough weapons, items, and magic necessary to defeat the dragon. You can also attempt to recruit warriors in the village to join you in your quest. The final stage of the game is a journey through the dragon's cave and the eventual final battle with the dragon to get the amulet. The provided story seems pretty standard today, but actually it was way ahead of its time in comparison to other early 80s console titles. Here's what it says from the instruction manual. You are the Dragon Stomper, the only hero capable of defeating a dragon obsessed with evil. The dragon obtained his power by tricking a power-hungry druid into dropping a powerful magic amulet in his cave. The dragon used the amulet to kill, oppress, and scare the villagers into submission. The once powerful king's brave knights became the dragon's evil henchmen, so no one, not even the king's powerful wizard, was enough to stop him. You begin the game with 400 gold and enough strength 23 and dexterity 23 to put up a decent fight against a few of the evil creatures inhabiting the land. You must fight your way to better items, weapons, and magic while keeping a careful eye on your strength. If it reaches zero, you must reset the game to resurrect yourself. This section of the game is huge by Atari 2600 standards. There are 20 full screens of landscape to explore. Your on-screen avatar is little more than a simple rectangle. Being only a few pixels wide, it's less than a quarter the size of the square that is the avatar in Atari's previous game, Adventure. But what a powerful rectangle he turns out to be. You begin your quest with a few gold and no weapons. As you fight your way around the landscape, you'll find many items of use and collect much gold in the process. Some of these items, charms, crosses, potions, rings, and staves, are enchanted with magic. They will help to increase, or in some cases decrease, your two basic stats, strength and dexterity. The effect is random until you use an item for the first time. Once you've used an item, the effect is set to increase or mildly decrease your stats when using that item. It stays the same until you reset the game. This can make for some very interesting strategy choices, as the game will have to be reset if a charm or other item decreases a stat when you use it the first time. You start the game with 23, like I said, in both basic stats. You don't gain experience points a la Dungeons & Dragons, but your simple goal is to increase your strength which is basically hit points combined with D&D strength and dexterity as much as possible. This will allow you to become the fierce warrior that is needed to defeat the evil dragon. There are many places to visit. One example is a church where you can donate gold to increase your strength. There are many other places to visit such as castles, huts, temples, grasslands, and more. Most buildings will be locked until you find a suitable key, a very important but scarce resource. If you have a hand axe, you can try to just break down the door. You must battle snakes, demons, beetles, monkeys, slime, maniacs, ghouls, spiders, and more. There are nine different types of locations to visit, 11 items and weapons, and 12 different creatures to do battle with. The hand axe is the only hand-to-hand -hand weapon you can find, and it greatly improves your ability in close combat. Visiting places basically results in you being attacked 
or receiving one of the game objects. Also, there are various traps scattered around the countryside. You must avoid them or hope you have a high enough dexterity to get out of them quickly. The higher your dexterity, the harder it is for you to hit by monsters, and of course, the easier it is for you to get out of traps, as I just mentioned. The higher your strength, the better you will do in battle, and the longer you will live. You will be repeatedly attacked while on your quest. The fighting action takes place in a simple menu interface. You can run from most battles without too much trouble, and this will be extremely important early on as your strength will be sapped and it replenishes very, very slowly without a cleric or magic help. To make it across the bridge and into the oppressed village, you must have 1,500 in gold and a strength and dexterity both at max of 52 each. Again, there is an alternative method for gaining access. If you can figure out what the bridge guard will take as a bribe, he'll let you into town. In town, you'll be able to spend your acquired gold on a number of items that will increase your chances of defeating the dragon and stealing back the amulet. You can purchase magic scrolls such as Blast, Flash, Protect, Unlock, Vision, and Stun in the magic shop. Blast will take some serious damage from an enemy combatant, while the others will aid you in various ways. Flash will help light up an area of the cave. Protect will help confuse the enemy into missing their strike on your avatar. Unlock will remove magic barriers and help emancipate the amulet crystal. The stun spell will freeze your enemy, while the vision scroll will help you see traps. You can also equip yourself with healing elixirs, which increase your dexterity, medicine, which cures poisons, and vitamins, which increase strength. All of these can be purchased at the hospital. You can buy a longbow, rope, lanterns, and other equipment at the trade shop. You have the ability to sell off all of your unneeded equipment from part one and use that same money on these and the other important items from the hospital and magic shop. This is great because only the hand axe is of any use in this third part of the game. If you have enough gold or precious gems left, you can attempt to recruit at least one of the three warriors in town to join you on your quest through the cave and to the dragon. When you have finished shopping and recruiting, it's time to load part three from the cassette and head into the dragon's cave. Before you make it to the dragon, you'll have to avoid guardians, pits, poison darts, and more. Make sure you have enough medicine, rope, and other items to help you through this section. Once in the dragon's lair, it's a fight to the death. Ranged weapons, magic, and a lot of healing potions are needed to succeed. You don't even have to kill the dragon, as I mentioned before. If you can somehow figure out a way to get the locked amulet, unlock spell would probably help here. The game will be won. Dragon Stomper is an excellent game. It holds interest even today. Casual and hardcore game designers should pay reverence to titles such as these. Not only was it innovative in every way, but it has that virtually unknown and almost impossible to create quality that makes you want to keep playing until you finish, no matter what your real world responsibilities may be. And get this, there was no way to save the game. So you had to play all the way through in one session. The Supercharger and especially Dragon Stomper holds a very important place in the vertical blank. The 2600 was already getting long in the tooth for us by the time we heard about the supercharger. We were gearing up to get an Atari computer throughout all of 1983, 
And this cassette-based system, which we purchased as soon as we had birthday money in 1983, allowed us to extend the play of the 2600 into areas we hoped computer games would bring. Dragon Stomper especially started to pique our love of CRPG, or computer role-playing games, which still goes on to today. Dragon Stomper would lead us to play Ultima 4 on the Atari 8-bits, Dungeon Master in the Fantasy series, among others, on the Atari ST, and many other computer role-playing games on the PC and beyond. But Dragon Stomper still holds its own as one of the best role-playing games of its type, even given the limitations of the hardware. Besides Steven Landrum, here's a brief bio on some of the other brilliant people who worked at Starpath. Craig Nelson was a hardware engineer at Starpath. His knowledge of the 2600 from having worked at Atari was pivotal for the small company. He was the principal designer of the Supercharger hardware. He is also credited with creating the legendary title Rogue for Epix. Scott Nelson was Craig's brother, and as a game programmer, he created Fireball and Survival Island for the Supercharger. Scott also moved to Epix, like many of his fellow Starpath brothers, and programmed versions of Summer Games 1 and 2, the Games Winter Edition, as well as Chip's Challenge for the Lynx, and The Secret of Monkey Island for the Mega, the Atari ST, and PCs. Dennis Caswell created Escape from the Mindmaster, Labyrinth, Party Mix, and Phaser Patrol for the Supercharger. At Epix, Dennis created one of the all-time great 8-bit classics, Impossible Mission. Stephen Hales was just 19 when he became a programmer for Starpath. He would later make a name for himself making many games for the 8-bit computers. But for the Starpath, he created the Asteroids-like game Suicide Mission and went on to program Ford Apocalypse, California Games, and SimCity, as well as many other games up until the mid-90s. The AtariPotos.com site has Dragon Stomper as Excalibur, and it mentions that Dragon Stomper was originally called Dragon Warrior 0.5 before it was renamed Excalibur for press clippings and then was finally renamed Dragon Stomper. For all the fun and brilliance that Dragon Stomper and the Supercharger were, and they were incredibly fun and brilliant pieces of software and hardware, they only fueled Stephen my needs to move on to much more advanced computing and gaming platforms. In the summer of 1983, we were longing for the ultimate control over the system that programming would give us. We even purchased an Atari Basic programming book months before we even had an Atari computer and started writing our own programs without any way of even actually trying them out. It's easy to see why Steve and I wanted to move from pure console games to a computer just a few short years after having finally obtained an Atari VCS. The VCS was dying, arcades were trying to figure out ways to draw more players in, and the simplistic games that have fueled the 70s in the first few years of the 80s were no longer grabbing the public's attention, let alone our attention. Besides wanting to make our own computer games, we were completely consumed with the game software reviews for the Atari computers in Antic, Analog, and Compute magazine. The one thing that always drove our desire for more gaming and computer power was the sheer brilliance of the games being created on these 
relatively powerful 8-bit computing platforms by people who literally knew how to control the actual vertical blank. There was even a news story in one of the magazines that rumored that StarPath would be creating games for the Atari computers. If they could make such an incredible experience with the supercharger in 6K on the lowly 2600, what in the world would they be able to do with 48K on the vaunted Atari 800? StarPath went out of business before they could start making those Atari computer games. But the members of the team went on to create even more magical games and devices that are also firmly planted in our ethereal vertical blank. Hey, so see in there, I actually found an article that was written by uh, a guy at Forbes. Yeah, a few. Uh, a yeah, few. no, I saw that. And he talked about how Dragon's Dropper was the best console game ever made. So I, I, I mean, I, I read it and I kind of agree with him. You know, I just wanted to be better and better. I wanted games to get better and better. And I, I remember sitting down and playing that. One of the things that struck me about Dragon's Dropper later was it's really a super hardcore game. I mean, if you think about it, it's in-depth and you can't save it. You have to win in one sitting. I know that's most Atari VCS games are that way, except in this case, it's also super in-depth too. So super in-depth and you can only play in one sitting. Like that's hard. Right, right. Well, there was so, you had to you go across the countryside and get your stuff up to 53 bolts of strength and dexterity. You had to collect a whole bunch of gold. The instruction manual, it did kind of say what you had to do, but it didn't say exactly what you had to do, as I recall. And there, I don't remember what it was, but I was able to bribe the guard one time to go across to, I forget what he wanted, but it's not easy to find. But the thing about the game was that it wasn't as linear. I mean, it was linear, literally, because you had three cassette loads to get to the three different sections of the game. But you could do multiple different things to, to finish the game, which made it really cool. And so it had even more depth. Solve problems, which is which is a brand new thing for console games at that point. Not many other games you had multiple solutions to a problem. Yeah. Adventures like stick gold key and gold castle. I mean, that's pretty much all there was. Yeah, you could use the bridge maybe to cross over a few things, but the answers were always pretty much the same. Adventure is a very literal interpretation of having a few items to solve. Well, to solve adventure a is a literal interpretation of the text game adventure. And for that, it's an abstract piece of amazing art, to be honest. I mean, adventure is great for the game it is. It's the, one, of, one of the first action-oriented, almost roguelike, but it's not roguelike because you're not just collecting weapons and things. It's just action-adventure game. And yeah, it's cool. So I wrote a little piece, more of a poem about adventure. Adventure or Dragon Stomper? Mean, well, Adventure and Dragon Stomper together. Oh, cool. Because they form a basis. Here it is right now. A smaller dot to be, a bigger dragon to slay. You are still a dot in Dragon Stomper. 
it's something I just noticed while replaying the game. The passage of time has afforded me some perspective in this area. In Atari Adventure, you are also a dot, just a bigger one. There are three dragons in Adventure, who all famously look a bit like ducks. Pretty much all of us made this connection as kids, ducks as dragons. At 12 years old, it was kind of embarrassing. It seemed silly even then. It's burned into our Gen X vertical blank brains like question mark blocks of Mario Kart bananas would be to later generations. In adventure, you could run from them or slay the dragons with a sword. That is, if the bat didn't snag it from you. Unlike adventure, there's only one dragon in Dragon Stomper, and compared to your dot, it's much more impressive. But in both games, you were a dot, and the dot is very important. It's not male or female. It's not black, brown, or white. It's not short, fat, tall, or skinny. It's not a nerd, a punk, a meddler, or a volleyball player. It's not a breakdancer, a handball player, quad denizen, or wall sitter. It's not honors level 1, level 2, or resource. It's not AYSO or club soccer. It's not on the outside looking in or the inside looking out. It's not from a rich neighborhood, a working poor one, or from a normal or weird family. However, the dot is you, and in this case, it was me. Just like real life, just like the RL. The dot and adventure let me discover a secret message, like the ones in the three investigators books. It was glorious, but it still left me with a desire to accomplish more. The dot and dragon stomper took me on high adventure through three stages. Neither game allowed you to save progress. Your goal needed to be accomplished in one sitting. If I turned my power off on the 2600, that was it. Lights out. Game over. Just like real life. Just like the RL. In Dragon Stomper, the every person, the dot, represented what you needed it to represent. Representation mattered. It was an abstract way to include anyone who played the game. The dragon was whatever I needed to slay. Like the PJ Pearsons of the world, who made my life a living hell. Later RPG games on the computer, the SMS, and beyond got more sophisticated. The stories got more intricate. The adventure got longer, taking dozens of hours instead of just one or two to finish. Save codes and battery backup allowed me to play the game at my leisure. But the games also got more specific. It was not me playing, it was that guy on the screen. Disassociated, disconnected, I disappeared, and the game took over. Man, that was awesome, Steve. Every single time you write something, it's awesome. Like, I write a meandering, like, 25-minute thing about Dragon Stomper <laughs> that has two funny jokes in it. And then you go on and write, like, five minutes of the greatest description of console RPGs ever. This is and not true. Anyway, Dragon Stomper, I mean, it's seminal. It's a seminal game for me. It lives in the vertical blank like few other games do. Like few other games do. All the ones we've talked about so far yeah. on this podcast and the ones we'll talk about in the future, they're all vertical blank games. This game has a very special place in that vertical blank. How about you, Jeff? I wish we hadn't sold it. Like, who did we sell it to? 
I have no idea, but I wish we never sold it. I have no idea. I have a copy now. I have a full box copy sold to me by Atari Spot, which I think was sold to him by David All, the old editor for Atarian Magazine. So the the copy I have has a it's cool. It has a a pedigree that you know I don't like have a signed letter or anything, nor did anybody care. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. I will never sell it. I don't have anything Starpath no except for the Stella gets a new brain CD. Um, which has everything on it. Plus, there's yeah, all the instructions. the boxes. Everything. Again, the box for this one is is just incredible. I mean, it's one of the most amazing boxes ever made, in my opinion. The cover of Dragon Stomper has the side view of a knight in incredible silver-like yeah. armor, full plate armor and helmet. But he looks it's evil. Like, vertical blank. Like, you can't get it out. It's amazing. Yeah, I don't know if you are that person or if that's someone yeah, who you're fighting the evil knight that fighting game. the dragon took over. No, you are a dot. You are you. Ah, well, I get you. Not anybody else. You could be male, female, any color, any shape or size. That was so cool. That that was what I what I what 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 I think struck me when I played those games again at Adventure and this game was that you are not anybody. You are you. You could be anybody. It wasn't until later where games be, games started having a default character who was uh, how would I say this uh, default. The default character in the eighties right. started in all the movies. That sort of a problem with now, with people not realizing that the default isn't real. Lots of video games had that default character, and it's cool to see that there was a time when default was not default. It was whatever you wanted to be, and that's because they were. It was abstract, if that makes any sense at all. It makes sense. Abstract makes sense. I like that. I like thinking about the golden age of video games being abstract art and us growing up at a time where things were abstract, that anybody could be the hero, much like things are becoming again now. Um, let's do a watching, playing, reading. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'll do, oh, it's easy for me, Jeff. Watching. We just watched Stranger Things 3 and it was freaking amazing yeah i love stranger um, things 3 also because of stranger things 3 we then went and watched the goonies which is not so good because we drove through astoria oregon and then we watched it and really the goonies didn't has not aged well the explorers on the other hand which came out i think a year after has aged well and is awesome yeah, and explain explorers a little bit because you and i love this movie explorers was ethan hawk and river phoenix yeah. And another guy who ne never did anything else, who did very little after, and they get a message from space and they create a capsule to fly into space. What's amazing with about an Apple it, II, with an Apple II with Apple IIe. Yeah, it, it's very much, very similar to the movie Contact, which came out in the 90s, but this is a, like a kid's version. Its tone and dialogue and the way the characters interact and stuff is very Stranger Things-like. Unlike the Goonies, which is really has not aged well, in my opinion. There's only one common thing between the Goonies and Stranger Things. It's the one actor. Yes, Bob. Uh, what about you? What are you watching? I watch Stranger Things, and right now we I'm going through the uh, Veronica Mars season four on Hulu. It's um it's pretty good. The original, the first two two seasons of Veronica Mars from like 2004 and 2005 are just utterly fantastic. It's like a combination of Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, and then and all the anything you could think of, um, where the the uh, protagonist just kicks ass. 
I, I would say I thought that was funny that in this season of Stranger Things, they turned the character Nancy into a bit of Nancy Drew, which I thought was pretty amazing. But. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. I don't so want to ruin it for anybody. What about playing, Jeff? Playing, I did purchase a game finally for the for the first time in a long time on Steam, which was a version of Doom <laughs> for the new version of Doom. And I played through it a little bit and I did well and then I haven't played much of it again. And the rest of it are those ST and I got a whole bunch of games. I, I got a Mega Retron and a Yobo for playing all playing NES games. So I've been kind of collecting those a little bit. But I still stay in my Atari stuff. I, I made a couple of videos of of Atari 800 games for our YouTube uh, and Atari ST games for our YouTube channel. I've been playing a few. I still have a few, a lot of videos that I've that I've recorded, but I haven't been able to narrate yet. Okay. So I'm doing some of those. So that's what I've been playing. So what are you playing? You didn't say oh, playing about- nothing, Jeff. With my arm the way oh. it is, I've stopped playing all things. I can't play games anymore while I'm hurt. So it's really disappointing to me. I was right in the middle of Dragon Quest XI, and then I'm right at the end, but I can't finish it until uh, something happens. Same with reading. I was reading Jamie Lendino's uh, Faster Than Light, the Atari ST book, which is great, by the way. His book is great. Well, I plan to interview him for soon for the, an episode oh, on the Atari ST. That would be great. I The thing is, I can't sit up and read anymore, so it's really hard. So reading, playing games, and driving, and actually working are really, really hard right now, but I'm trying to get over it. There will be physical therapy that happens later this week. I don't know if that's going to help Yeah, yeah. So, but um, as far as programming, so I- Well, I've also got reading, reading. Uh, oh, go ahead. So reading, I, so of course, I've made it right. I made it just to the section of Jamie's book where he starts talking about audio recording and i haven't gotten through that yet and not that i don't want to i just that was a good place to stop when i was on vacation i purchased karen hawkins um compedium of atari 2600 games volume one and it's from his three ebooks and it's been expanded to include 10 games per letter and it really does cover most of the games and then a, a lot of games that i have never played which is great because I get to go play new games for the 2600 that actually have an explanation and not just randomly picking oh, something. Cool. Best of Atari User Volume 1. Atari User is a current sort of fanzine magazine out there that is put together and you can actually buy all the back issues also. This is this has an Atari 400 on the cover. It covers 2600, ST, XE, um, 400, 800, Jaguar, Lynx, everything Atari, it, even though there's nothing on the portfolio in here. It covers everything, this magazine, and it, this would be atariuser.com. You can buy back issues, and I plan to go back and start buying all the back issues. And also the XL magazine, that's just for the Atari 800. There's an issue of that that came out a little while ago, so I'm going to get that also. So there's a lot of Atari-specific reading material, and that's completely cut off my need to go to the store and purchase a retro gamer. Oh, that's cool. So I haven't, again, I can't read that much. I've, I did, though, load up Atari 700 Basic again and pulled up my old game I was, I was making called Iron Grip. I got it working again after I had to rebuild my computer. So that's cool. I'm using an old piece of art that I took of Gramps's of our grandmother's house, painting of like a mid-century house in Southern California, like a bungalow as the box art because I own it now. It's uh, art that you own. It's so my art that I own, and I'm gonna I'm retitling that mid-century, and it's a puzzle game called Mid-Century. I don't know really why 
It feels like that's what I want to build and so that's what I'm doing. It's more like an art piece is what it is. That's what I'm, that's my slow boat sort of, what I'm actually trying to do is to use Stoss, but target the, the STE specific scrolling sound and glitter. And I've been looking at how to do it. It's hard. None of it's easy, but I'm looking at it. Like that's what I've been, my, my, my program has been kind of looking at that, or my retro program has been looking at that. Although a line of code has not been written yet for on either one, but that's just the way I usually examine these things for a long time before I start anything. But I really want to get a retro game out there that's not just a piece of junk, right? Just is pretty good. It can't be, it can't look incredible because I can't draw a straight line, but it could be pretty good for pixel art, right? It's not quantity, quantity. it's quality in this case. Yeah. I saw someone's like, someone's got to make a 7800 version of Moon Patrol. Someone's got to make a 7800 version of XXX. I, I get, whenever people say that, I'm like, I get the urge to want to do it. And I realize I'm not the guy to make a precise reprogramming no. version of anything. Also, the 7800 is a fantastic development platform, but there's no way to take your game really and put it on a 7800 unless you have one of these rare cartridges, the Mateo's card or something that very few people have. It's almost like this little club of people that have them and no one's making any more. Yeah, I know. I don't, like, it makes it hard, but I wish someone will do it because I really want to make games for the 7800. Well, you can, well, you can make them and play them with an emulator that work great. I mean, what if someone made Dragon Stopper for the 7800? That would be fantastic. That would be you awesome. Wouldn't need a, well, multi, you wouldn't need multi-load or anything like that. Hey, look, we just came full circle. We did. Episode of it. I mean, I know, I know people have tried to make RPGs for the 7800 and use this high score cartridge to save and stuff like that. All of that's cool, but it's like, to actually have the people, the number of people actually have the hardware to take advantage of that is like on, you know, you can count on one hand. Yeah, it's pretty minute. Yeah, it, it's like you have to be hardcore, but we know the 7800 lives in the vertical blank because it's the what could have been for Atari. Could have. Well, and we, we wanted it right away too. We weren't one of those late adopters who got an NES and then later got a 7800. We had a 7800 instead of an NES. Yeah, we got it in 86. So. And then we got us, and then I bought you a Sega Master System for Christmas. I yeah, think. not to. We avoided the NES on purpose. Yeah. Probably because of those cartoons that David All wrote in. Atarian. But, yes, I don't even want to talk uh, about the, the The less said about those, the better, although someday we have to cover them because they're, they're amazing in how inappropriate they are. Um, <laughs> anyway, so again, Dragon Stomper. So Dragon Stomper for the ST also with better graphics? Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, it, it, in that case, it should be a, you can make a better game. It doesn't have to be a remake. Maybe Dragon Stomper 2. Would yeah. be good for the ST. Anyway, the dragon came back. Anyway, yeah, let's um, let's end it there for for this week, for this week or month or this, whatever it is, this summer. <laughs> hey, we have a Star Wars episode coming up. I can't wait. I don't we, know if we're gonna have it done. We've for done a September. lot of work on the Star Wars episode too. Yeah, I, I want it done for September for a particular reason. Okay. Anyway. Hey. Um. Okay. Until next time, into the world of light. Thank you for listening to 
Season 2, Episode 9 of Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari, Dragonstone. Until next time, Into the Vertical Blank. Into the Vertical Blank. Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V-blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.